The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone is the president and CEO of the National Urban League, Mark Morial. Thank you so much for being here today. It's not exactly the way we would have all liked to start Black History Month. Hey, good morning, Zerlina. Thank you for having me. And yes, uh, best for. Uh, an elevated and energized Black History Month. But certainly, as you say, uh, Tyree Nichols will be funeralized today in Memphis. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have to keep his family and uh, his memory in prayer. And as we know, it will be a a day of mourning, but a celebration of this man's life as well. How have you been processing everything in the aftermath of the killing of Tyree Nichols three weeks ago? Um, What do you think it says about where we actually are as a country in our conversation about racism, white supremacy, and police brutality. You know, I am like many channeling my outrage, channeling my anger, channeling channeling my disgust, trying to channel it into uh, you know positive energy around police uh, reimagination and reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, the, uh, the 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 confrontation in Memphis is a reminder that we have not fixed the problem of police culture in America. Uh, And it is a reminder that Congress, uh, mainly because of GOP members uh, and a small group of Democrats, uh, failed in the aftermath of George Floyd to take bold and decisive action to go on the record to say enough is enough. And we're going to push that again, understanding that no federal bill is a panacea. No federal bill is a magic bullet. No federal bill is going to solve this problem because there's a lot of work that has to be done at the local community. But we cannot tolerate this abject brutality. These officers appear, as more information comes out, Mm -hmm. to have had charred, difficult disciplinary records where they, some of them or one or two of them have been involved in uh, incidents uh, previously. Uh, and this is a wake-up call to every city, uh, every police department, every sheriff's department, that when it comes to disciplining your officers, you know, you have to be firm and you have to take officers who have a propensity to brutalize, to engage in unconstitutional policing, uh, policing off of your force. And you have to be willing to confront unions and civil service rules uh, in order to do that. But for the black community, uh, it is once a rem- it is a game of reminder. Now, these officers were black officers, mm-hmm. but I remind people, the victims are black. Right. And the common denominator is that uh, black officers can join a police department and be infected by the same sort of hostility uh, and brutality towards black citizens as racist police officers. Uh, so the common denominator is, and so we hold up the torch of justice uh, no matter who the perpetrators are, 
I've been talking all morning. Uh, and we about... have to be clear. We have to be <laughs> unambiguous about that. You just mentioned the, the, the fact that... Go ahead, go ahead, Serena. Yeah. I, I just wanted to um, piggyback on something you've just said, which we've been talking about all morning, um, which is, you know, there were some, not a lot of people, but there were some folks who um, pointed out that, well, the police officers are black, so how could this be racist, or how can this be an example of racism? And we've been discussing all week about how this is an example of the culture of policing and systemic racism. But I've also been asking the question this morning about in some ways, this feels more painful because they're black. Because as a black person, you live as as a black person your whole life in a black body, and you know what it's like. You know what it's like to be dehumanized. You know what it's like to be treated as less than. And yet you put on the, the blue uniform and abuse the power afforded to you by that uniform against black people when you know what it is like to be black. I mean, do you feel in some ways that it's more painful that the police officers themselves are also black? I do. I do. My outrage is so high because yeah. it, it's a reminder. So I'll give you two historical points. Uh, you know, in the days of slavery, many quote unquote slave catchers, remember the movie 12 Years a Slave, mm -hmm. are other, were other African-Americans, other black people who were incentivized by money to go out and quote unquote catch uh, uh, arrest, uh, detain, kidnap other black people and place them in slavery or return them to slavery. And then number two, Malcolm X spoke eloquently about how racism also creates self-hate mm -hmm. amongst black people. We have to acknowledge that self-hate and how self-hate may manifest itself is that we begin to believe uh, as a dominant society believes in stereotypes, in uh in in characterizations that are entirely negative so it's a it's a complex thing but we have to recognize that this is nothing if you will new right this is nothing this is a continuation of this uh this system of white suppressed supremacy uh black uh uh, uh, uh stereotyping of inferiority uh that has been a part of the system of a slavery which was fundamentally based on white supremacy in a caste level caste type society so yeah i am completely outraged uh, when i when i watched the videotape it it shocked me i mean in effect i said these are gangsters mm. with badges and guns these are straight up these brothers were gangsters uh they had no regard then when he was seriously injured and dying, there was no humanity, no effort to assist him, no effort to help him. The immediacy was, let's figure out how to cover it up. And yesterday, the New York Times uh, had a piece on how the police reports were in direct contravention to what we saw on tape. And that is another issue of systemic racism. Years ago, when I was a young lawyer, I fought a battle all the way to the Louisiana Supreme Court to ensure that police reports in Louisiana would be public documents and public records. Uh, and it, they were used, I used them, and at the time I was doing criminal defense cases, mm -hmm. uh, to challenge officers so officers couldn't walk into court and just in, in, invent a story 
that was inconsistent with the police report or inconsistent with eyewitnesses. And so, you know, there is there is in this entire many, many lessons we're learning. But my hope is that there's going to be some courage and conviction from the Congress of the United States since George Floyd, notwithstanding efforts by uh, many of us in the civil rights community, uh, many, many uh, electeds, uh, mainly on the Democrat, almost exclusively on the Democratic side, uh, Congress failed to make a collective statement by passing a bill, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Bill. And what we have to do is insist on a substantive bill, not a watered down version that engages in feel good politics and check the box politics and say, well, we passed a little something that we could pass, but that it doesn't begin to address uh, the systemic issue. So we're going to have this debate uh, once mm-hmm. again. And I think the debate has to be framed around doing something real and meaningful or putting lipstick on a pig or socks on a rooster. I mean, it, I, I, I joked earlier in the show that one of the one of the outcomes that I'm sort of dreading is, you know, if if Republicans do come to the table, it might be on giving more funding to police under the guise of like training. Um, they need more training, more specific training, and it'll end up being funding police more as opposed to some of many of the reforms that are in the George Floyd um, Justice and Policing Act that it, that would go to some of these structural reforms that are necessary. Um, one of the things that we've been trying to do on this show is create a space to have a nuanced conversation about not just this case, but also the larger conversation about race in this country. And I feel like, you know, in post Barack Obama, we had Donald Trump. Um, Historians uh, are going to write for the next hundreds of years um, about this moment in American history, probably um, because there's so much happening. But how do you think we, we can approach this conversation? Um, Because as you said, Republicans, probably aren't going to come to the table on anything. Um, so legislation in the next two years, at least, is is not as likely as um, after that, if the uh, Democrats take over oh. the majority. So so in the meantime, we, we still push for that legislation, as you said. But we also need to have this conversation as, as Americans. Well, I'm going to call on every mayor. And, you know, as a former mayor who led a very successful police reform effort in the 90s. I'm going to call on every mayor, every police chief, every local elected official to grasp this issue Mm. by the and to do a complete audit and examination of your own department, your hiring practices, your disciplinary practices, uh, your training. This is not about more training. This is about what you train for. Uh, you know, and and part of this is overhauling how you train officers, right. how you discipline officers, how you deploy officers. Are you simply going to be a, 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 a force that believes that uh, running around and picking on people from small things like traffic stops? Mm. Or are you going to be a serious, proactive patrol a, a agency that community engages and you know, this is fundamental to we're having a discussion about the proper role of law enforcement and an, and an understanding that law enforcement is not enough. Uh, you need youth interventions and youth programs and investments in youth. You have to deal with underlying root causes like economic and housing issues. Uh, I can tell you uh, I'll put uh, not only my work, my record and what I've done online with anyone 
to demonstrate that if you do a combination of things, you can get some results. The issue is to make it sustainable and long term. So we're going to have the debate. I, you know, it, the Republican Party and the Republican leaders, uh, you know, should go back and look at history. Mm. And that history is in the civil rights days when Everett Dirksen and a number of other Republicans uh, worked with President Johnson and broke the filibuster in the Senate uh, and also un unlocked uh, the, the, the deadlock in the House to pass the Civil Rights Bill, the Voting Rights Act. And America is better for it. Uh, and so all will be evaluated in this moment of history. But we shouldn't fiddle and faddle only in wait on Congress. Yeah. Every local elected county executive, anyone that has a police department under their jurisdiction should say, you know what, I'm going to audit, I'm going to evaluate, I'm going to review, I'm going to try to ensure best practices. I'm not going to tolerate uh, ineffectiveness because sometimes these, in many instances, I found the brutal departments are also the most ineffective departments right. Right. in closing cases, in following up, because you have a bunch of offices basically mis, uh, mis, misfocused uh, on the wrong types of things. And so my message to people is if you want effectiveness in, if you will, addressing violence, you have to have trust in a working relationship between law enforcement and communities. And the two are not separate. The two are not distinct. The two are not mutually exclusive. And you've got to get people to fundamentally understand that. And every police officer, mm -hmm. every police chief who knows this stuff will tell you that. And they may not pronounce it loudly, but they'll tell you privately, hey, give, your, give, give our youth something more to do. Work mm -hmm. on some of these problems that are, are, are producing uh, some of what we see. Help us get some of the guns off the street. Uh, help us uh, uh, address mental health uh, crises uh, in many in many instances that go unaddressed. I mean, even the police chiefs uh, will tell you that all of these holistic measures are necessary uh, in order to uh, uh, confront the challenges that we face. Such important points. What do you think the role is? You mentioned a Biden executive action, or, or you've been tweeting about um, executive actions that Biden could take um, and the administration could take. The vice president is attending the funeral. What role do you think both the president and vice president um, play in a moment like this and in terms of focusing our attention on the things you're talking about? I mean, I think that uniquely um, the president ran right after Charlottesville, right? I mean, he said he's running to restore the promise of America. I feel like this is your moment to come out uh, and take the microphone. He's got to be continuous in his messaging on this issue uh, over a period of months. This is not one speech, one conversation. It's not a check the box. It requires continuous the power of the presidency to educate people and to promote the notion uh, uh, that we need police reform is important. The power of convening uh, Police, office, police uh, ex executives, mayors, elected officials, civil rights advocates around this is number two. Number three, fully implement and fast track the implementation of your executive order. Uh, and then number three, I think uh, it, it is about having a further discussion about what other executive actions uh, you can undertake. I'm a very firm believer, you know, as a former mayor, former state legislator, and, and, and a person who cut his teeth in local 
uh, advocacy and activism as a lawyer, I firmly believe that the other role of the presidency is to energize and assist local elected officials in having the strength and the courage and the conviction and the tools they need to wage this battle uh, on a local level. Uh, that should not be missed in this conversation, and it, and it should not be a false assumption that simply if we pass a federal law, it will fix all these problems. But that being said, it is important that our national government, that the Congress of the United States uh, work with the president and mm -hmm. help us get a very strong public policy statement in the form of a George Floyd justice and policing bill that does structural things and the other things that are needed. Let's do something meaningful. Let's not engage in political semantics. Let's not engage in this sort of incrementalism that will have us having this conversation again and again and again. Important point. One of the things that's true about this country is that we're undergoing demographic shifts. And I feel like, I mean, most experts would point, point out that it isn't a coincidence um, that we're evolving into a multiracial democracy. At the same time, many of the voter suppression tactics have been um, implemented um, and, you know, there's divisive rhetoric everywhere. Um, and also we're, we're dealing with these uh, frequent instances where black people are killed by police or vigilantes. I mean, talk a bit about how... Um, how we're going through this shift and, and that it, it's going to be painful, but it, it's necessary to actually, the promise of the 14th amendment is that everybody is equal, no matter who you are. We're not there yet, but we're on our way and it, it's painful along the way. And you're so right. You're so spot on point. And uh, I embrace, endorse and speak a lot about the multi-racial democracy that we're becoming and think about what that means. That puts the United States in a place where no other nation has ever been to truly have a multiracial, multireligious, multigender oriented orientation uh, uh, society whose, whose, whose glue is in its values of justice, equity, freedom, and opportunity, whose glue is in its values, whose glue is not based around simple ethnicity or religion or the power of the bayonet bayonet or the tank uh, because when you've had multi uh, racial and multicultural kingdoms they've been held together colonialism was that way the British and Spanish empires were that way but they were held together by force mm -hmm. and by war and by brutality uh, the Roman Empire was that way the Greek Empire was that way but they were held together by force and by armies and by war. And our promise here is to build a nation that is not held together by force or armies, but the ability to build a nation uh, which is multidimensional and multiracial and multicultural and multi-orientation and multireligious that's held together by a set of values. And so we are, we are in, in, in an experimental phase and there's anxiety of some who do not want this, but you cannot stop. This, this process. This process will occur. Uh, it is baked into the birth-death formulas that we have. Uh, it is simply a fate accompli that we're going to become much more multiracial, multireligious, and multidimensional as a country over the next 30 uh, to 50 years. And we have to prepare for it, and we have to work towards it. And I think younger generations 
a more embracing of it. I just hope that younger generations do not get infected uh, by the power paranoia uh, that that fuels uh, this sort of white nationalism and white supremacy. Uh, it's a paranoia about power. It's a paranoia about status. Uh, it is a it is a it is a it is a sick kind of thinking about the future. And that, it, this is not about conservative versus. Uh, uh, liberal political philosophy. Mm -hmm. It is about conservative philosophy embracing racism as a tenet, mm. and 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 that is what it is about. And conservatives need to understand: Hey, we don't want. Is, is racism going to become our primary tenet? Is ethnocentrism going to become our driving force? Is that going to become the fundamental uh, glue that holds our? Uh, our our political coalition together. So conservatives have uh, to look in the window, in in the uh, uh, in the mirror, uh, mm. and do some examination about what this uh, moment really means. And I think for progressives, it's also important to understand that even in the progressive movement, there can be the racism of uh, what I call paternalism, mm -hmm. right? Uh, mm -hmm. And 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 I I am absolutely you know, opposed to and have been vocal in many places about that type of racism, which infects uh, even some of our progressive allies, that we are, you know, that some of us are to be bought and bossed. Uh, we will never be bought. We will never be bossed uh, by anybody. And so this is the maturity of the movement that uh, certainly has to take place as black communities and brown communities and Asian communities and indigenous communities and as many communities, LGBTQ communities, come of age and come of, of power to sit at this table, this big table uh, in American life that determines the future of the country. And so we want everyone to sit at a big table. We don't want to have a table and then, and then people say, well, okay, over here is the kids' table. Y'all sit over here. We sit over <laughs> here. Y'all give us our, your recommendations. No, that's not what we're. That's not what we're building here. That's not what I'm in favor of. That's not what we're in favor of. We're in favor of one table. I definitely don't want to be at the kids' table. You know what I mean? Right. I'm not trying to sit at the kids. I hated when I had to sit at the kids' table when I was young. My my mom put me over in the corner at the plastic table with the plastic tablecloth. I don't want to sit over here. I'm going to be at the at the adult table hey, talking, look, talking I, I to the get, adults. I, I get in trouble with my own family when we have a family gathering. I say, don't put the kids at the kids' table. Put the kids over here with us. They need to hear what we're talking about. That's true. They this is, this is a really important point. We they got we gotta we gotta we gotta expose them. You know, when I was growing up, I got exposed to civil rights and politics because it was the child care method that my parents used. Right? They had no babysitters, so when they were going to a rally, they were going to a meeting, you just went with them. Right. Right? I mean, you just went. I can't tell you how many NAACP chapter meetings that I sat in the back <laughs> as a five, six, seven, eight-year-old uh, when my father was the branch president in New Orleans. And when I, I listened and I'm thinking, man, these these grown people are arguing up a storm. Like, they're in there arguing, debating a storm. And at the time, I'm like, what are they talking about? You know, Dad, we got to get out of here. And he said, no, 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 this is important. Later on, you understand this is uh, 63, 64, 65, and they're arguing about the Civil Rights Act. They're arguing about desegregation. Yep. They're trying to change the city. 
I mean, I think that we have to expose our young people uh, to these conversations and do it with intention, right? Do it with intention. And we all have to work, uh, I think, more to do that. I think that we all do too. I mean, and I think that what you're talking about in terms of not having the kids table, having the generations, the different generations have a dialogue. I mean, that's super important. I mean, one of the things that gives me hope for the future is that Gen Z, um, they're really different than other generations. I'm a millennial and they're different than millennials. They're different than Gen X. They're very, very um, eager to make change in the world. I'm not saying other generations didn't have that at all, but Gen Z, they know that some of these crises are existential, right? Um, And some of them are things that are going to impact them directly if they don't handle them now, like climate change, but also police brutality and white supremacy. I think that the, the way in which Gen Z understands and talks about and discusses identity and intersectionality, that get, that gives me hope. I don't know about you, but I feel hopeful because I think the next generation gets it in a way that I did not until I read a lot of books. (laughs) Well, you know, I got a 17 year old and a 20 year old. And, and then I have a, an older daughter as well, as you know, and uh, my, 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 my two young people, you know, during the George Floyd, I mean, they, they, what, you know, my 20 year old was, let's see, he, you know, he and his friends organized their own protests. And then when I said, Hey, y'all want me to come? They said, no, 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 you, I don't even want you around. <laughs> this is, this is our thing. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and my daughter got a chance to speak at a rally and I think you're right. They, they're infused and, and I hope we can keep that fire going. You know, that they're infused yeah. with this sense of purpose, this sense of this sense of change. And they've been shaped. Look, they you know, the notion of a black president mm-hmm. is not as big a deal to them right. as it is to many of us who saw that as such a tremendous breakthrough. Uh, but they also sometimes ask, if you all have been fighting for the last 50 years, why are we still dealing with these problems? And, and you know, that's really a wake up to many of us to say, why are we still dealing with these problems? Have things really changed? And of course, I'll always argue because you can't, you, you may not have a perspective of how things have changed unless you live during segregation. Right. Unless you lived in the right. times uh, of lynching, unless you understand that it's hard for people. Well, I don't think so. And someone told me, oh, I don't think so. I think it's just, I said, well, you didn't live in it. So what's the basis for your opinion? Got to be careful asserting opinions that are not based on lived experiences or any real examination of history. Uh, and I, I say that all the time. You got to be respectful uh, of, uh, of those, those challenging, difficult times. You know, my parents and grandparents, my parents lived in segregation. And they were in their late 20s. Uh, when uh, early 30s, when uh, the Civil Rights Act was passed. So they lived a significant portion of their life, you know, behind the bars of segregation and and the stories that they told and uh, the life that they lived and the limitations that they faced, but also the beauty and power of the communities that they built uh, and the fabric of those communities, uh, you know, from civic organizations, Mm -hmm. to political civil rights movements to the church uh, you know, a really, really, uh, you know, great, great, important, uh, important lessons for us to learn. But uh, I, I think you're so right. And we just have to continue to nurture and pour into uh, our young people this the passion. You know, the issue is really the passion, the knowledge mm-hmm. and passion to continue to fight and understand it is not going to be easy. 
and you have a responsibility to be in the fight wherever you work, whatever you do, however you approach it. Such important points on this first day of Black History Month. The president and CEO of the National Urban League, Mark Morial, thank you so much for being here. Hey, it's Jordan, always great always. to talk to you. Thank you Appreciate so much. You. Please stay safe. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday. 